0: You're listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications
1: Group. www.americantheater.org.
2: Good afternoon, and welcome to the November 19th, 2021 edition of Off Script, American Theater's uh, live chat and now podcast about all things theatrical. I'm Rob Weinert, Kent, the Editor-in-Chief of American Theater. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm coming to you right now from Queens, uh, the lands of the Rockaway and Maspast Nation
3: specifically, and I'm here with... I'm J.R. Pierce, Associate Editor for American Theater. Uh, My pronouns are he, him, and I am calling in from the lands of the Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria, uh, also known as Chicago, as my background shows today. Well, my
2: background today is not where I am. My background is the Lyceum Theater on Broadway because our we're honored to have today uh, two guests we'll get to in a second. Uh, two amazing actors who are doing some of the best performances in town or pretty much anywhere. Uh, Deirdre O'Connell and Emily Davis, the stars of Dana H. And Is This a Room, respectively. We'll, we'll talk to them in a, in a few minutes. I can't wait. But it's been about a month since we... Uh, almost entire month since our last off script. So there's a little catching up to do about some of the things we've been publishing. And I just wanted to go through a few of those. It's a bit of a whirlwind. So I recommend you look at the link. So it'll probably be on our Facebook page and just go to our website and check out some of the stories. So um, one, uh, one sort of cluster of stories that I want to just mention was some previews, of, uh, or, previews or features about productions to specific play productions that are happening as in-person theater returns in various forms. Uh, one was about Teenage Dick, Mike Liu's play, which was embarking on a tour that began at Woolly Mammoth, um, and, and it's going to end up at Passing the Playhouse, I believe. There's another theater company in there as well. Um, that was fascinating to just talk about putting that play on. Um, the Chinese Lady, which according to our stats is going to be, as uh, Lloyd says, play. It's going to be the most produced play in the coming season at TCG Theatres. Fascinating piece by T. Tran about looking at the... The meaning of that play now, uh, right now for Asian Ameri- Asian Americans, but also uh, just for uh, identity in general. It's a wonderful piece. Um, and then uh, a piece by Nicole Hertweg about the Red Bike, um, a, a play by Carrie Dodzwich, was, was given a sort of uh, neighborhood staging outdoors in DC, um, which is you know a bit a bit of a holdover from some of the kind of creative experiments that were going on during the pandemic when I mean, the pandemic is still going on, but it's in person, but it's outdoors and they use some farmers markets and crowd uh, already existing uh, gatherings there to sort of stage their play uh, for people who just happen to be at the farmer's market. So that's a fascinating story. Um, JR, there was also a couple pretty impactful pieces that that we put out that created a lot of conversation. You wanna tell us about those?
3: Yeah, uh, we put out a couple of pieces that talked about know, we've been covering the role of digital theater in the theater community for, well, since the pandemic began, we've been looking at it pretty closely. And these two pieces kind of look, tried to address what the future might be. Uh, We had one from Rosie Brownlow Culkin, who's done a few different uh, research-based, survey-based articles for us. And this one, she reached out to a bunch of theater leaders from around the country to actually ask what the results have been from these digital productions. And for the most part, they weren't great. And at least monetarily, like we can talk about the art, art, the art that came from it, but at least monetarily, a lot of people weren't seeing the results they were hoping for. Uh, And then we had a manifesto for the future stage from a future stage research group at Metalab at Harvard, I want to make sure I get that right, Um, which Talks a lot about the potential if, if theater actually dedicates itself to this new medium. Uh, the line that stood out to me is streaming is a creative medium, not a support, uh, which I think those two articles are kind of in conversation about. And a lot of the conversation that happened on Twitter is like, well, <laughs> yes, theater didn't see the results that they were hoping for, but are people treating it as its own medium or are they still looking at it? as a sort of support for the so-called real work that goes on on stage. So um, it's definitely an ongoing conversation. And I think both of them have a really interesting place in keeping this conversation going as theaters really start digging back into in-person work. So those are those two. And I also want to talk about uh, an interview I did with a new artistic leader out, uh, out West at La Jolla Playhouse, Eric Keene Louie who got uh, promoted to executive producer there where he'll be overseeing basically everything on the production side about how shows come together as well as their um, equity, diversity and inclusion work. Uh, So basically Eric has this charge of creating more inclusive and equitable spaces uh, within La Jolla Playhouse. And it's a really great Q and E where he really digs into the nuance between like an organization that says they want to do this kind of EDI work and are putting leaders of color in position and positions like EDI director and like what theater actually looks like when it's actually committed to making sure this work can happen and happens successfully without overburdening or draining the uh, leader of color that they put in these positions. So, or and making sure those aren't just figurehead positions where they don't actually have power. So um I think Eric talks to those really really well and I really enjoyed that conversation and I encourage people to check it out. Oh and I'll throw it back to you Rob I know we want to talk about Broadway a little bit as well. Yeah well
2: speaking yeah speaking of follow through on a a diversity push uh as you may have noticed or you maybe don't know this uh, there is something like eight or nine I've actually lost count of how many plays by Black authors are going to be on Broadway which is historic first and Kalender Smith a wonderful writer Based in Atlanta, has made a couple trips to Broadway, and she's looked at uh, those plays from Chicken and Biscuits to Thoughts of a Colored Man, Trouble in Mind, which just opened, um, and just in Passover, and looked at you know asked the question of this is great, so there's something to celebrate here, but what does this mean for Broadway? Is there going to be commercial pressure on these to to deliver in a way that you know that has some extra weight because they're black authors? Um, and what will it mean for regional theater. It's, it's a wonderful piece. I don't wanna sum up the insights. It's actually a, a lot of different insights in there. Um, it's almost like three essays in one. So it's really, I, I, I highly recommend reading that. Um, on a fun note, uh, Yasmin Zachary McHale, uh, based in Chicago writer, wrote about the dramaturg who was on Jeopardy. She only was there for one 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 night, Madison May Williams, but she lit up uh, social media uh, because she spoke about dramaturgy on Jeopardy. So, um, Anyway, that, that was a fun Q&A to see what she's up to. Um, uh, let me see. The, the, the big thing we did this week, and I, I, wanna, I don't want to rush through it too quickly, but I do want to get to our guests, but we did uh, our first full-on tr- uh, training-themed package um, uh, since January 2020. We used to do them every January, an issue on whether it was acting training, musical theater training, directors, uh, dramaturgy, we'd look at one different area of training with each special issue. It's obviously been a strange year. We've written a lot of stories about education um, and training over the past year and pandemic and the challenges of that. But this is sort of a back to school issue for lack of a better term. Um, And I'll just race through as much like, there's a a wonderful story on what it's like for in-person training. Of course, there were some schools that did some, some in-person over the past year and hybrid, but now they're all kind of basically back. And what does that mean? How does it feel? Daniel Ignacio, a wonderful editor contributor wrote that piece. Jerry, you have a wonderful piece about education programs, uh, theater education programs were also kind of hobbled by the pandemic. They're coming back with the help in large part of the team councils. Um, there's an excerpt from a new book about the audition process uh, for actors of the global major- majority. Um, just how to navigate that. There's actually a really interesting dialogue between uh, Tom Oppenheim at the Stella Adler studio and Pamela Karaman at the Neighborhood Playhouse. And if you know your theater history, those are, thats one, one of them is Adler and one's Meisner and they're sort of heirs of Stanislavski. And they talked to Isaac Butler, a friend of mine who just wrote a wonderful book about the method, about the sort of legacy of Stanislavski in the 21st century. Turns out his work might still be relevant in different ways. And Jared, there were a couple other pieces in there that were really interesting you wanted to talk
3: about. Yeah, we had three pieces come in from professors that were, were all super interesting to me. Uh, the first would be one from uh, Melissa Toning Colwitz on uh, the idea of teaching acting students the standard dialect, which when I was an acting student, that's what I was taught, the standard dialect. Um, and how, finding ways to be more inclusive in that speech training and to allow people to bring themselves to that kind of speech training rather than trying to conform everybody to a certain dialect. Uh, and then we had a piece from Alicia Andrzejewski uh, who talks about how contemporary works like uh, Fairview or an octoroon, which both have like big moments that blow audiences away like in the theater, how those translate to the page, and how she can bring that kind of that kind of experience that you kind of feels like you can only get in a the theater to to a classroom where you're just reading stage directions. Uh, and she makes a really great case for how powerful those moments can still be on the page. And then we had uh, Anna Kuzmanek and Linda Rothke from Northwestern uh, had their six MFA costume design candidates explore what it means for a costume designer to create outside of the script or narrative that their work may be tied to, uh, especially with the pandemic and without a lot of shows going on in person, especially ones that might not have called for like extensive costume designs all six of them kind of explored their own voice outside of what uh, their thoughts are tied to a playwright or a play. Uh, so yeah, those are those three. And I, I really enjoyed those. The photos in that last one are great. Just a, a really great exhibit from that costume design piece.
2: So we've been busy for the, for the past month. Now you have a month's worth of reading there if you haven't caught up already. Um, I think it's, uh, it's time to talk to our two fabulous guests today. Deirdre, O'Connell, and Emily Davis, if you want to hop on. So honored to have you with us. Um, I was just—I was just thinking, um, you know, for folks who haven't seen these plays, um, we often just jump into a discussion as if we all know what we're talking about. But I wonder if you each could just—it's a terrible question, I guess, in some ways. But <laughs> just give, give, give me an. The, the synopsis. So you say you're in an elevator. So it says, what, what are you doing now, Duda? Do what show are you in? What, what 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 do you say about Dana H?
1: <laughs> We're in a show called Dana H. And then I push mute. No, <laughs> 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 it is a terrible question. I'm 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 uh, in a in a piece called Dana H. Uh, Dana is Lucas Nate's mother. It's um, based on a interview. Um, where she spoke at length about uh, an experience she had about 25 years ago where she was kidnapped um, by someone who she was doing um, uh, chaplain work with in a mental hospital who she had befriended and and, uh, she and her husband had taken, taken him in temporarily and one thing led to another. And so it's a, it's a remarkable story about sort of empathy and, uh, and uh, danger and her discovery of a kind of underworld that she didn't understand existed, that were connection where she was seeing connections between white supremacist groups and police. She was experiencing a a sort of, of a, a a trap that she was in that she couldn't get out of because of of, of beginning to understand how that worked um, and her trauma through that and and the tra- word trauma even seems like oh God, I'm so tired of hearing the word trauma. What does it even mean? But you know <laughs> the word is appropriate <laughs> um, and how she how, how she clawed her way out of that um, out of the, the crippling effect of it that she hadn't even really faced. And then, um, the piece itself is almost, uh, a, a part of that work of her clawing her way out of it, I hope. And it is the, the magic trick of it is that I lip sync her voice for the whole time. So you're actually hearing her talk, but it looks like it's me talking and that the, the work of that creates a, we actually didn't know what the work of that would create when we had the well, when Lucas had the idea, and uh, and it turns out it does a lot of things um, to me and to the audience and and to the work of actually listening to someone and and hearing someone well when they're talking about their lives, being forced to listen. I think the piece forces you to listen because. You're, you you gotta listen because the thing I'm doing is so hard. So it would be rude not to. <laughs> that's basically it.
2: <laughs> well, that's a good description. I'm sorry to put you on the spot like that, but I I, I was thinking about I don't sing any
1: was, songs in it, and I sit in a chair the whole time. That's right.
2: That's right um i i was thinking about trying to describe it and lip syncing hardly does it i think it's body syncing you' it's it's not just your lips it's not just yeah, it's your true.
1: it's true it's your
2: whole person um but my lips are,
1: my lips are the thing that if i screw it up then you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> very
1: I think true I they're my they're the
2: tell very true well I, I i i did that because in ways your show is hard to describe i think uh, Emily, your show might be a little easier to describe in terms of what it comes from, but could you just describe? It's reality, the story of Reality Winner, the story. It's the it's the interrogation, pretty much the entire thing, right?
0: Yes. Um, we took the FBI transcript of the day that, um, that the FBI arrived at the home of Reality Winner in Augusta, Georgia in 2017, um, uh, and we reenacted word for word on stage. It was not a... Um, it's our interpretation of it, so it's not like a, a, a mimicking of any kind of recording. Um, we just had the text and the words, and we decided to turn that into, you know, into a into a play,
1: basically.
2: Right. No. And it didn't know about
1: each when we were starting this. It's a coincidence that, that they both exist. Right.
2: And they were both at the. We were just talking about they're both at the Vineyard Theater off Broadway. In in consecutively, like the end late late 2019 and the beginning of 2020.
1: Yeah,
0: yes, I saw. I saw the. I went to the opening of Dana H. At the vineyard, and that was the last thing that I saw before the pandemic.
2: So it's, a co- it's a coincidence although it feels it feels almost like something synchronistic it's hard to explain this the yeah we were
1: saying it. that that i mean i think matt ross literally got in the subway he the way he describes it he got in the subway with his wife after seeing dan age went wait i have an idea and i i wonder well if he had been in a different subway stop you know and he'd been <laughs> from a different theater would he have like would it have just cli- clicked for him in that way we're so lucky that it clicked for him in that way i think another thing that I don't know why I need to say that, but I do. And another thing that's unique about the two things that has been really uh noticeable, maybe partly because we're started after the pandemic and, and we're on Broadway and all this stuff, is that they're they both took many years to make. That we did them at the vineyard, but we did them at each of us in our own worlds, we're working on them for years before that. So that they're I was thinking today about about. You know, what, we're so used to seeing things that are cooked for the same amount of time. They might they might get an off Broadway tryout or whatever, but the the formula is is something might workshop thirty hours here, thirty hours there, four weeks of rehearsal, you know, ten days of tech if you're a big Broadway show, or one day of tech if you're not, and then and then it's made. And we're so used to seeing things that are made in that amount of time. So they have a certain, they, you know, we're certain we're used to certain constraints, and we're used to certain kinds of. We accept we we accept that as 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 kind of like wow, they did that in four weeks. That's, but it's also the the deep limitations of it. And then I was thinking like, why do we love the Brits so much? Which I mean, I'm, i I love the Brits so much, and it's partly because by the time they get their shows here, they've they've cooked. They've like developed the thing. They've had their long run. They've gone. They've gone through the transitions of getting themselves to the West End or getting themselves to the National, whatever they do. By the time they arrive on our shores, you're seeing a, a really well cooked cake with a lot of decisions have been made and remade, and things have been thrown out and put back in, and 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 uh, and performed a lot performed you know with the stakes really high and very clear and and so it's interesting to think about that like just the how long things take
0: it's almost like these were like process-based projects versus you know result or for the performance because we went into it each I know separately um Tina and I and the rest of the ensemble just really in love with the experiment and enjoying bouncing from residency to residency but there was not necessarily ever this idea that we were doing it to land at some kind of theater. And it seems like hearing you talk a little bit about the beginning of your work on this with Les and Lucas, it was sort of the same idea, right? Like, let's try this out, there could be something here, but it was more about the like, just the the experiment of doing it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there were these commitments to do it at these theaters, but whether that was gonna be a a terrible experience or a good experience, (laughs) we really did not know. It could have just we, if they could have just walked out in droves. That would have been completely understandable. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, we just established that the, the difference between the two shows in terms of of a little bit about the way that they that they exist in this in the in the space. Like one is uh, you play it to a tape, Deirdre and and, and Emily, your, yours is based on a, a transcript, but they're both real people. And I wanted to ask you about. Uh, the extent to which, in this prolonged process, you were in, you availed yourself of the real, uh, the real, real people, and, and whether you felt a responsibility—all the kinds of things actors, I think, feel when they play, you know, a biopic or something. Um, but this was a more intense, intense process. And I wonder, it's, to what extent did you make use of uh, contacts with the real person or, or, or draw on their lives, and at what point did you say, "Now this is my, this is mine now"?
0: Well, we had. Um... We had early. We heard from Reality's mom pretty early on in the process, um, Billy Winter Davis, and um, as soon as we had sort of her blessings, because I think at that time the story was so was was not being reported on very much, and so they really the family was really happy for any attention to come towards uh, what was happening to Reality. She and I exchanged a few letters, few emails when we very first started working on this, and it was and she was just whip-smart and funny and the letters were not were about just I don't know really like kind of personal things happening in each of our lives but crucially there was this thing in between me really getting to know this person very well and it was prison Um, and so so for the next year even though the first iteration of this show that we did at the kitchen we did meet her family I met her sister Brittany um, and um her mom and they were very moved by the show and i think the the little that i knew about realities um i knew that she was she was nervous about us doing it but it seemed also like ultimately she was okay with the fact that we were um telling the story of this day in her life and then over the next year i had i had i tried unsuccessfully she was moved to a different facility and i tried to write um, to her, and my letters were returned, and I think other people were having issues getting in touch with her as well. And then, over this past year, once we learned of the news of Broadway, we were a little more in touch with Billy again. Um, and ultimately, I did get to say hello to reality on a Zoom call. Um, so I've heard her voice like, you know, once or twice now, um, and we're in we're in touch now. Um, but I feel pretty protective of. The, of keeping the two things s- separate in a way. I, I never wanted to, to, to get close enough to that person that they would influence how I was going to do this thing that I was doing with Tina, which was very much a, a separate project in my mind. While doing it as respectfully as we could, we also had our intentions with the piece that, I, that didn't necessarily I didn't necessarily need to cross over with my relationship with this person in real life, if that makes sense.
2: I just want to flag, uh, Tina Satter, the director, I don't think her name has been mentioned in full, but uh, which you, you created the piece with, and Les Waters and Lucas Nather, the- Co-creators of your piece, but Deirdre, why don't you tell me what what your relationship with? De- Can I just ask you
1: one thing, Emily. Were you when when um, her family first came to the show the the day that they were seeing it? Were you were you really nervous?
0: Yeah, I was really nervous, but also there was like a film crew there from NBC, so there's already oh. these layers oh. of oh. performance around what you're. You know, it was just kind of like yeah. hey, yes, uh-huh, you well, know, that's
1: just one of the nightmare elements I'm dealing with.
0: But she, but her mom, Billy, is just this deeply, like exactly how she just, I've said this for, she very much reminds me of my mother, sounds like my mom, like it was because, you know, our families are from the same part of Texas, which is another, like, um, pretty important detail, I think. Um, What was your question, Didi? Yeah, I mean, I I was nervous. How did you feel that day? Yeah, yeah. I was nervous because we, I was nervous because at that point, this was still such a, I think, horrific and shocking. I mean, it still is, but to the family and me not knowing them very well, I didn't know, for instance, how they would react to the fact that there were a lot of funny parts, the way that we have staged it, that we had infused it with a great deal of humor. Now I understand that humor functions hugely within that family and I and I feel a little more comfortable about it. But at the time, I think that, yeah. was, that yeah. was the most nervous about like making sure that they understood that we weren't taking this lightly at all but that we feel that people are able to listen differently when they can laugh and that it was going to be a part of like this bigger thing that we were making that was integral to how we staged it rhythmically yeah
1: Yeah. um uh my answer to that same question would be my my original my Dee's original thought um uh in, in beginning to act, work on the acting of it was that I wanted to, I just lately have, have been like, I just want to, all the information I can possibly get. And a lot of it probably won't even do me any good, but I'll like, you know, go to the to the place where the play takes place and get no information. But at least I went there. Um, so I had a whole idea that I was going to go on a, on a, when I think of this now, I'm like, have, you know, a field trip to Florida and I was going to make Dana show me everything. <laughs> and, and uh and and hang out with her and talk to her and just you know get a hotel room and see her as much as she would let me and and um so i expressed that to lucas and um and we th- he was fine with that uh and i kept trying to schedule it and that you know from the time that I knew that I was doing the piece until we were actually going to start rehearsals there, there was maybe 4 or 5 months in there and I was spending a lot of that time by myself um just trying to technically learn how to do this but um but the other project I wanted to do was go to Florida and see her and if not that you know she was going to be coming into New York for some openings for Lucas's plays and could I could I have a day with her in New York and kept trying to schedule it and the, and we kept running into snafus like oh no she's actually moving or she's changing jobs or she's actually not coming to New York that day or but so the snafus kept kept rising and I gradually let go of it and realized that I don't think that they sat down and said we don't want to do this but I realized that they didn't want to do it and when I and then I thought well then I'm just gonna this is just gonna be a further you know a further little little uh, uh Thing in the science I don't know if the word is assignment in the science project which is that I don't get to meet her. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just get all the information that I possibly can from just letting this this voice pour into me. I also had access to to the transcript I mean not the transcript the uh the document that she had written as part of her work of therapy of just like trying to order and 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 make a and make a uh you know, make the story of what had happened. It's just like has chapters and everything. It's beautifully written thing. And it's, and it's got a lot of great insight and information and unexpected ways of thinking about things. Um, so I had that, I had all the transcript of the entire hours and hours of interviews. So I had a lot of material. So it wasn't like I was, but I did not get in a room with her until we had our opening night at, um, in Los Angeles. And so I hadn't, I hadn't actually met her until then. So I had a, a a person in my mind or a person in my, yeah, in my subconscious mind, for sure. I didn't like make up a person, but I just through that, you know, letting her pour into me, I had a lot of, and I was very nervous the first time. I was just afraid that it would be too hard for her or that she would feel like I was, I was mis, misrepresenting her in some way, or that I was getting off on it in some way. You know, you feel very like, feel very responsible. And like, you don't, I, I think about, you know, don't put my own, it, it makes you feel like you cannot put your own ambition as a, as a person or an artist ahead of, her level of exposure and the responsibility that you have toward exposing somebody to this much of the rest of the world knowing this secret thing about her—it's—it's a—it's a—it's a balancing act. It's—it keeps you—it keeps you, keeps you vigilant in a way. I think, um, but it also—I feel like it took me a while to claim it I felt like I didn't have the right in a funny way like it didn't happen to me and then I didn't feel that way this last time she came I wasn't nervous about her seeing it I felt and it wasn't because she'd given me this enormous amount of approval or something it was just I feel like she'd done it like hundreds of times I had a stake in it that was my own stake in it it's not the same stake that she has and it's not the same stake that Lucas has but it's it is a stake and I felt like we were sharing it in a different way it was I wouldn't have known that I felt that way until I realized after the show uh, opening on Broadway that I was not um, really afraid of having overstepped for her in a way that I was the other times that she'd come and I don't feel that I had and she had said I hadn't but but it's just such a it's such a, it's a psychological thing.
3: Is that yeah, that
1: you to, to Emily, or is it it's a very different thing?
0: I, I yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think the circumstances are just so different because I've yeah. never, he's never seen what yeah. we And you've made what you did in Los Angeles when Dana came for the first time is the same, is what's at the Lyceum, correct? There yeah. haven't been any changes. Yeah. No,
1: tiny, 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 if there's anything right. you would be able to tell except us. And, and uh, But I remember Le- Lucas saying the, the day before she was going to see the show, she came, he showed her the theater. And as soon as she saw the hotel room, she was like, I can't do this. Yeah. And she went back to her, her hotel room and went to bed and it was in the afternoon and I was like, oh shoot. Oh, no, it's not gonna be easy, you know, just seeing uh, the room like,
3: she thought she couldn't do it, but she did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, wow, yeah, that's a lot. I And like, as you're talking about building these I, I even hesitate to say characters because they're real people that you are portraying on stage. So I'm, I'm curious, like how as actors, your approach differed when you're trying to build this person that you know is out there living and breathing versus like a, a fictional character in a different play. Like how is that process different for you as you, you try to find that emotional and, and um, character journey?
1: one of the things i think i realized was that it that it isn't that different and it can't be that different that that there is a way that i still had to i had to tether it to myself and my own imagination and my own you know inner life and and uh i i sure had a a huge source that was feeding my inner life that was her and it was her information that i could glean from her but but that but the more I realize, no, it's actually the same process. I still have to be like the better it has been. Um, but like I say, there's a sense of responsibility that I think in 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 that that are, that's almost in the act of performing it, where I don't ask myself the kinds of questions that I do, which are more to do with, am I bringing enough to this? You know, uh, moment in the play. I'm being told exactly what to bring to every moment in the play. So, so those, so those questions where it it, it it's dicey because you're like, mm, my sense of restraint and grace is saying like, my lady should not be showing the audience watching hands right now or whatever that might be. And, and, uh, and then, and then there's another battle that goes on a but, but am I, but am I shortchanging the piece by do it by, by my restraint here or, or am I, you know, like all those kinds of questions are just like, I don't have to ask those questions because her level of restraint, her level of, of, uh, clarity, her, her emotionality, I am just leading with her. I'm just, I'm just following her. And so it's been really interesting to note how much people take care of themselves when they're telling stories. I think
0: that what Dee's saying, I mean, yeah, it hasn't been that much different from a normal pro. I mean, boy, we are not the, Tina's theater company and half straddle. We are not a group that sits around and does table work. When we start a show, this is the most literal, This is the most by-the-book sort of acting, I think, I've ever done, with, certainly with this director. And, we, and I really sat down and thought, what do I know about this person based on the script? You treat it like any other thing. What part of the world is she from? What's her history? Physically, what has she been through? What does she do when she's uncomfortable? How might she stand? How might she breathe? What does she do when she's upset, et cetera, et cetera. I think the difference, you know, and I do get asked this question about responsibility a lot. Um, to the real person. Uh, the biggest responsibility to me is stage. Actually, I just think that, you know, I, I cannot tell you how many people ask me, well, why would she it? You know, people want to know they have so many questions when they leave the show. And I just try to never answer for the real person reality winner because it is impossible to do that. I can, my work, my work stops when I step off stage from the interpretation from what we are giving with this piece or what we're offering. Um, and that's my rule for myself, I try to not speculate on the myriad reasons that this person could have behaved in the way that she did. I only have a sort of, you know, sparkling emotional connection to her that I've built somewhat just calling from myself and somewhat also, you know, from things that I've learned about her along the way. but. Um, but yeah those lines are really clear for me and the process feels like i've approached it pretty much the way i would approach any gosh straight play i don't know <laughs> but yeah so
3: and speaking of that that line when you get off stage we had a conversation maybe a month or so ago uh with namir smallwood and john michael hill who were in passover and we talked a little bit about the the mental health stipend that they got to like give themselves that kind of space once they got out of that heavy material. So I'm just kind of curious how both of you were able to take care of yourselves mentally once you're off stage, once you're able to, to step away from these, these tough roles.
0: Can I just say that I love Namir and we were working on a television show <laughs> together this summer when we both found out that we were going to be on Broadway. And it was just kind of like. Huh? like so I it makes me feel glad to know that he was taking care of himself offstage because I know he was working his butt off also um I don't know Didi what I I think it's like seeing it's such a it, it, the I think this role asks for kind of like I mean the physical exhaustion of it asks I try to be very gentle with myself. time, you know, not working. But this is also just such an unprecedented moment of like, I'll do anything to be around other people. I wanna see people, I wanna talk to people, you know what I mean? So, um, which which can also be a healthy thing. Um, Drink a lot of water, get a lot of sleep,
1: read a lot of books. drink a lot of water, I get a lot of sleep. I I try to get a massage. Ah, yes, yes. I still gotta get to your guy, that's right. I, I, uh, I do not, I do not make myself, I, I, on the other hand, have, have been pretty isolated. I spent a lot of time in this apartment. Um, I sort of feel like had only so much more time left. So I can, I can hang on just partly just from paranoia of like, do not get a positive test. Not that I would, but so, <sighs> so I don't go to plays and I haven't gone inside restaurants yet. And I don't go to people's houses if there's going to be more than one person there. And, you know, doing those sorts of things so I'm leaning leading with paranoia um but I I tend to have a pretty isolated life anyway when I'm doing a play just because I feel like I'm in the energy preservation game this is a little easier because we're sharing the burden but it's interesting to note for both <laughs> of us that we've been like but how do you get ready for that show after you've had two days off? Like, was well, like, whoa, the train is moving so fast when you get on that stage. So, yeah. but learning, learn. I feel, I feel like just as we finish up, I will have learned how to do that, and that's basically just take the entire day before the show after two days off and devoted to H as if I haven't done it before. So, but that was helpful because that means I'm not freaking myself out in the two days off i'm like just i have these two days off get to think whatever thoughts i want to think and then i will devote the day but that also means scheduling like you know somebody will be like well can you you know audition that day and i'll just be like no i can't <laughs> the, the day day. i'm a big baby i mean you know people are like can't you come out after Like, no I'm going to have so much fun when this is over. I'm just going to be like, you're that crazy person partying on that? that's to me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I wanted to ask you, since we we just put out an issue about uh, acting training or about training in general, but acting training, and the method came up. I wondered about you both worked in so many different kinds of uh, projects. Um, just a little bit about what 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 your training was. Did, did, it, did it tap into kind of method based approaches to tapping emotion? Was that part of it? It sounded like both of you in describing your process uh, touched on some of the things that, that f- folks in that tradition do. But just tell me a little bit about your, your background and training, each of you.
0: Um, I have been in a sort of acting training machine since I was in middle school, because I went to the arts magnet program in Dallas, where I was born and raised. Um, and then I came here for college. I studied at Playwrights Horizons at NYU. Um, I really don't know that I have ever landed on a kind of process. I think it, for me, truly depends on who I'm, what the show is and who the director is and who I'm working with. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty deferential in terms of how to approach the material or how to make the role. I am always a firm believer in breath work, um, and try to not let my, uh, too much of myself and what I'm thinking about get in the way of um, what I'm being asked to do just for the, with the group. And that's the stage
1: picture. So, yeah. I started out doing experimental theater. I didn't really want to be a regular actor, but then I got, I mean, this is i I'm going to say the fast version, because it doesn't really matter who the, who the personnel was, but, but, and then I got tired of, of uh, being in situations where I was constantly, um, Deferring to a charismatic leader, which was not exactly good for me because I would always love them so much and just want to be the good girl in the company. And then I, So I realized that, that what I really wanted to do was be a regular actor so I could go from job to job so I wouldn't get caught up in those kinds of relationships, even though I pretty much appreciated the work that came out of those kinds of companies more. But for my mental health, I was going to become an actor and 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 work for hire. But I didn't know how to talk. <laughs> I really didn't know how to talk at all. And so I like a normal person in a play. So I had to really unscramble a lot of training that had gotten me into a very sort of, I don't know what it was, but pretentious, you know, slightly pretentious slot though. And um I found a teacher named Mira Rostova who was one of the she was she was Monty Clift's teacher and she had this very clear technique for analyzing script. And because I hadn't worked with regular scripts, it was good for me. And I spent years with her. And she was a very, a very tough teacher and a very precise teacher. And uh she did not teach about um uh sort of ha- how you how you mine your own emotional life. She Partly, partly maybe because of feeling so manipulated in this in the work with experimental theater, I was very um as very I didn't want somebody to get in my my stuff, but I did but I did need I did need an enormous amount of help just technically understanding how language goes from the page into your being and then comes out your mouth not sounding like you're insane or sounding like you're insane if that's what you're supposed to sound like, but you know what I mean? It's like um, Uh, I just didn't know how to talk. So I feel like Mira taught me how to tap into being able to talk like a person and how to analyze a script and understand when I was in trouble, like, oh, 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 just, just, just have this math that I, that I could do like, okay, so why would this person be saying this answer these, you know, five questions and it, and it comes back to like, ah, got it, got the, got the gem there. She worked a lot with Chekhov and Williams. Those were her those are those are the things you really worked with the most and so I spent years with her and then uh started to be able to to get work on the regular stage I worked for a while with Michael Howard I was crazy about Michael Howard but I didn't do a lot with him I just I just uh and then I I but I'm kind of like Emily I don't have a thing that you know a safe a safe thing that's like if I do these things then I'll be fine and and I don't know very many actors that feel that they do have that. Even if they do, I feel like it's part of the the terror of it all is that every time you start something, you're like, I am really going to be lost a lot of the time here. About don't you think maybe that's just him. because
0: those are the actors that we that we might find ourselves around, Didi, or gravitate towards. Because I think, I don't know, this is, I, I, I'm i not trying to knock any kind of process necessarily, but there is a self-seriousness. You know, when there's an actor who shows up and only knows how to work on something in one way, it really scares me. I'm like, well, then what are we all going to do in the room? Because <laughs> we need to meet you. Know, we all have to meet each other somewhere. So maybe yeah. it's that sort of it, like- It's just chaos for me when I start
1: <laughs> a, new, a new thing. It's just chaos. Like what would possibly make me feel comfortable and free? It, it will, it will- Teach itself. I did this stuff with Kim Gilliam, who who uh, does this dream work, and she's famous for this dream work. And I just had a bunch of friends who were doing it in the last few years, and so I embarked on like taking some workshops with her in the last year, partly because we were in the pandemic, and partly because I knew I was going to work on this thing that I'd done a lot, and I wanted a and I wanted a new way in. I didn't want to be thinking to myself, "Oh, okay, well, let's do what I did two years ago." Let I wanted to be thinking to myself, you know, let, let's let's crack back into this, but from a new angle, and it's very internal, and it's probably something nobody but me would notice. But but I I really liked her, and it's very specific and very odd and very um, and I it, it does unexpected stuff, and it's an unexpected technique of work. So it does not have <laughs> analyzing script; it has to do with going far away and then going, All that'll work. You can bring all that in. It's great.
2: It's so funny that you mentioned uh, with Mira that not having a voice or not being able to speak when when this is the part you're doing now. Um, yeah,
0: I could have done this then. <laughs> Come full circle.
2: And it is. And I was joking before the. You know, just to hear your your actual voice um, is a is a is a relief, right? I mean, are you going to be relieved when you can speak again or? It feels you were talking about the restraint of this performance, and I wonder if you ever feel like it's a it's a constraint uh, to have to to be confined to just, or is it a special register you you're able to find if you're deprived uh,
1: right of now? Way. Maybe because it's finite. You know, if we were if we if I was about if I was doing eight shows a week and I and I had another six months coming up, I might be feeling like differently about it. But right now, it feels like a delicious restraint, like. As if I was a person, and I'm not a person. But if I was a person who like enjoyed a, a light, some some light silks on my, I'm I'm held, I'm like I. It's like a, it's like what's her name's um, machine, her hugging machine that she built. Uh, who's the Who's the woman who made the hugging machines for the cows? She's a Temple faithful autistic. I say who Temple? Say? Temple. Temple. Yeah, it's
3: Temple Brandon. Like tem- yeah,
1: Temple's uh. I feel like I'm in Temple's machine that she made that that hugs you without anybody touching you. So it's a very um, I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty anxious in there, but I am being held in this really specific odd way in front of all these people. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very odd feeling. <laughs>
2: You're you're all by yourself on stage, and uh, uh, Emily, obviously you have you have your actors on stage with you, so there's there's energy to play off of there, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Could you talk about? I mean, obviously you can't compare it to being alone on stage. Have you done solo work before, or do, is this something you've you
1: me
0: moi? Identified? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Yes. I have. You have. Yeah. You have.
0: I have. Okay. It's been many years, though. Um. And in fact, th- it's hard to believe, but this we've been working on this piece for you know since 2018 now. So. I've been largely with the same group of people, and I—I I mean, it's an incredible group of performers. They radiate. They do enough with just this with their little eyeballs and what their peepers are doing to me. And then when you add on top of that the extremely diligent and to the T like work that they have that they, you know the choreography that they've made with Tina, um, you know Pete. Pete Simpson, uh, Becca Blackwell, and now Will Cobbs, um, who is a newer addition to the piece who we hired, um, or who came on board um, late this summer when we found out about the Broadway transfer. Um, it really does feel like, because of the way that, the, the taught, you know, what, what the goal was in, in the initial days of staging it with Tina, it was I felt that maybe this is just the athlete in her, but it feels like there was a ball that's being like hit around and you have to keep your eye on it the whole time and make sure that it's not possible that the ball could be in two places at once. <laughs> you know, like we all have to make sure that we understand what the moment that we designed, what like what the, where the tension is in each, I mean, it's quite like, it's easy to, to visualize and it takes everybody on stage. For the entire <laughs> 60 minutes, um, it's one of the joys of having a piece that is that short and contained. I mean, it's, it doesn't feel short from the inside, but I know that it, in length, it's quite short compared to, you know, most um, plays. But it really allowed us to get in, into the like second, second by second, beat work of the show. And the big ask of the show is that that stay completely consistent. It's almost like. Didi has these what she calls a tell if she if her lip sync goes off but to me it's like if our if our rhythms with each other that we have found and that we've so carefully like set in stone or that we you know that Tina sort of like. Um, Called out for us and put into place. If those falter, if they waver, then the piece has a completely the tone. It can just go haywire, you know. It can just go in a completely different direction. And we have the variable of the audience every night too, which is actually a hugely we're learning hugely impactful thing. Um, but yeah, never alone up there. Never alone with those people. And they're all they're all. I mean, I always say like in in this company, there's. There's always an element of trying to make the other person break character. Um, it's a little antagonistic. And in the past, <laughs> it's, been, it's been fine. Um, but this one, it's a little, you know, we t- it's a little more, the subject matter is a little more serious. So we don't really fuck with each other in that way um, anymore, at least not yet. There's still a few more performances. So we'll see what they have in store for me. But
3: yeah. When you talk about the audience variable, I'm curious for both of you, like, you've both been with these shows for such a long time through various venues like what's the difference that you feel like we've talked about it a bunch like what experimental theater feels like on Broadway but for for performers like what does it feel like for you to have these shows in particular in front of a so-called like Broadway audience
0: oh gosh this is such a big question and it's like it's I, I feel like I would know how to answer this better if I keep meditating on it because I'm still learning but I'm really feeling strongly that the only difference right now between experimental theater and regular theater is like the venue that it's in right and if you go to some venue that's been that's been labeled as experimental then the audience is listening to it in a certain way they might go in thinking I might I've aren't got a clue what's going on but I'll uh, try to make the best of it and see some good performance whereas in Broadway there's this expectation that you're going to understand what you see, and like if you didn't tell someone which of those it was going to be, it, it might behoove us all, you know? Like let the peop- let people just go see something that's been worked on for a really long time, that's been thoughtfully, ma- that's been well received, and has really enjoyed a sort of like the support of the, of the, of, the, of, the, of its, com- from its community, you know, spanning years, like, don't we trust that that work can do okay up there, Dee um, Dee? I'm, I mean.
1: Yeah, I feel. I, I feel the same way. I feel like I feel like uh, we've been underestimating the audience. We've been thinking that the audience wants that that theater should not be operating on the same sophisticated level as music is, as television is, as film is. But the, meanwhile, the public is like completely gone on these crazy rides. And then they come to New York city to go to the theater and they feel like their job is to dumb themselves down to go and watch the shows. When in fact, like if you offer them something that, that, that keeps that keeps them thinking and, and feeling and questioning and, and awake in the same way that, uh, that a lot of the culture that they enjoy taking in in their real lives, asks of them they completely keep up I mean this is not rocket science folks it's these are pretty simple pieces and they're satisfying on a very visceral clear level you once you get the rules of them and you get them in like in the first second people are down for the ride now I wouldn't have known that about about Dana H it but we learned it pretty quickly and I feel like the difference is just um the Broadway audience in general, I mean, my my period student analysis is if somebody pays that much money, they really want to reinforce the idea that they came to the right place at the right time. So they are ready to party. And they they that might mean that they're, re- they're ready to be shocked and they're ready to be to to have something happen to them emotionally, or it might mean that they're ready to laugh a lot, or it might mean that they're ready to really celebrate the music they're hearing but they are ready to celebrate in some way. They've they they they've signed on for some kind of experience that they um, want to have faith in. And a lot of times when we work in, you know, a, a more downtown scene that people might feel a little bit more like, oh, want well, you just show me what, show me what you got. And, and that has its own, you know, that has its own pleasures and dangers, but it's, but I gotta say, the audiences are pretty fun to do it for them, but we I do not feel like people are going like, what the heck is this, Charlie? Why did you take me to this? I don't feel like that's happening at all. Not for a second, which is surprising. Like if you told me that that would be what was happening, I wouldn't have believed you. So I'm learning a lot about like, wow, we really underestimate these folks. And I mean, of course, a lot of our audiences. Theater people who heard about these pieces and would have wanted to see them anyway, but some of them are. Do they get those TKTS tickets? They're like, what? what is it? What's it about? Oh God, how are you dragging me to this? And then they're like, wait a second. And it's very all very relatable.
2: Well, this is by my cue to mention that the, the play, the both plays, are running through November twenty eighth. They were initially announced to be to close uh, early, and now they're going to go a little longer because of the, the groundswell of support. So it's really heartening to see that. Um, you've got another week and change to do these shows. Um, we have just a, another minute. I wanted to, they're, they're sort of in conversation with each other by being there in a sort of abstract sense. Um, they have a lot in common in, in odd ways about what they say about a culture and about the way it treats women, um, law enforcement. We're putting you two in conversation. I just wondered, I know, uh, Emily, you said earlier, you don't wanna speak for reality, but I, I just had to ask, if you, if you think these, if these two women could be in conversation, what do you think they would say to each other?
1: Uh,
0: you know, I honestly think that they wouldn't waste any time on themselves. I think they would probably be talking about some sort of initiative that they could build together, some sort of coalition to help some group of people that would benefit from from their shared experience, from both of their experience. That is my honest to goodness. Um, I think you're right. Great, you know, yeah. you know,
1: Reality and Dana. Yeah. I think that's true. You'd
2: be like, what can we do? All right. Yep. What you can do now is go Unlike get your us,
1: tickets. We can just talk about ourselves.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. You were just you, you t- <laughs> but What you should do is get your tickets to Dana H and this is a room at the at the Lyceum Theater. If you're in New York, if you're not, you should come to New York and see it. Um, and if you like what you hear, please support TCG. It makes our efforts at American theater possible. Emily, Dee, it was so great to talk to you, Jr. This is an honor, break a leg.
0: Thank you. See you at the theater. Bye-bye. Bye, see
1: you there.